And please grab your Bibles again and turn to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 20 this morning. Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. And again he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed, that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and, when it had no, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, and yielded a crop that sprang up, Increase and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone with those around him, the twelve asked him about the, about the parable, and he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables so that seeing they may not see and not perceive, and hearing they may not hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, And the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones on good soil, ones sown on good good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit: some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. This is God's word. Would you join me as we pray? Lord God, as we study your word together now, we pray that your Holy Spirit would truly work among us, that we might not come to an earthly understanding of this parable, but that we might truly see the depth, the richness, as well as the challenges of this life. And we pray that you would equip us to flourish and thrive and produce fruit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this parable is one that I have wanted to preach on for some time. I did do a series of parables through Luke's gospel. I can't even remember which summer it was, last summer or the one before. And I deliberately chose Luke because if I went to Mark, we would have had this parable. 
Now, I'll try and space things out when we cover it. And there was a sermon preached on this three and a half years ago, almost by Rick Zilstrel, on the night that I was ordained to the ministry here. Now, what that means is that you guys have put up with me for almost three and a half years. So, congratulations. But as we progress through Mark this morning, as excited as I am about this parable in particular, we get to a chapter that's full of parables. There's a whole bunch of parables throughout this chapter. A whole bunch of them. And then we have a little note in verses 33 and 34 about Jesus' use of the parables. He taught these things, but he also explained these things to the disciples when they're alone. Now, I won't say too much about that now because I do plan to, to dive into that a little bit more uh, next week or the following week. So as we get to these 20 verses that we've just read, we see a few of the, what we might call the standard features of Mark's gospel coming into play. Mark's habit is to move us from one place to another and we move from one scene to another quite quickly, quite smoothly. Mark never gave us an exact location where we were based last week. But this time we see that Jesus has moved to be by the sea. He is by the sea. A great multitude is there. And Jesus hops into a boat to sit on the sea so that he can continue to teach these guys. Now, presumably it's something similar to what we saw previously in Mark, where the crowds were pressing in so tightly around Jesus by the sea. And he said to the disciples, get a boat ready just in case I have to hop into that. This wouldn't have been an uncommon scene through Jesus' ministry. It might have been becoming common. But for this sort of scene to take place more than once, for someone who is teaching, this is quite an incredible scene. People are coming to Jesus as a desire for what Jesus has to offer. And Jesus taught them. And he taught them, in verse 2, many things by parables. Mark is preparing us almost for the the shape of the chapter that's about to come, even though he didn't insert the chapter breaks himself. What's interesting about this is Jesus is moving from a very direct style of teaching to parables, these, these earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Parables that, if we have a right understanding of Isaiah chapter 6 and what Jesus is saying here, will only be understood by those who are spiritually discerning only able to be understood by those who the Holy Spirit moves in. This parable, of course, is a parable of the sower. Some people refer to it as a parable of the four soils. And this is a story that Jesus told. He tells his story, it's a hypothetical story, but it uses very real events of the day to point us to that eternal truth that Jesus is driving us to. As a sower... A man going out to sow seed. And when he did this, he would have done this just like every other sower at the time. They would have had a big bag, I imagine, it probably looked something like Hessian, even if it wasn't a Hessian sack, over over their hip, reaching in, grabbing a handful of seeds and throwing it as they moved through the field. It's not exactly precision planting. But this is what they did at the time. So the seeds are thrown out. There's a scope to it. There's a spreading of those seeds. And as the seeds are thrown out, they fall on four different types of soil. Some fell on the wayside, a path compacted by feet, maybe the wheels of carts alongside the field. 
the birds swoop in and take the seed away. Some fell on stony ground where the, the dirt was so minimal that it didn't really allow for a root system to develop and those seeds, which became plants, died quickly. Other seed fell on ground that would have been great for growing seeds in, except for the fact that the thorns came into those parts of soil. The seed grew for a while, but because of the thorns were choked out and did not produce fruit. Finally, some fell on good soil, and from that soil we see both in verse 8 as well as verse 20 an increase some 30 some 60, some a hundredfold. Jesus tells his story. And then he declares to the crowd in verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the end of class for today. Might leave you a little bit dissatisfied if that was a lesson you were given, hey? Is that it? Was that all that we're getting today, Jesus? It's almost like getting an early mark from school but not being able to do anything because you have no transportation to get home. There's, this, there's almost this limbo, this void, this well, what's next? And perhaps as we consider where we've been in Mark's gospel, this seems like an odd thing for Jesus to do. This is Jesus who is taught with authority. This is Jesus who is taught with authority against increasing opposition. Yes, we see the popularity, we see the crowds desiring to be near Jesus, but there is increasing popularity. This is a time where, according to earthly logic, you would do everything possible to satisfy your followers, to keep them happy as a means of defence against those who would do you harm, who have stated their desire to destroy Jesus. Mark has told us that's the desire of those who oppose him. It doesn't seem to make sense from a human perspective. But what we need to remember, what we must remember, is that Jesus did not live according to human wisdom, but he lived and demonstrated godly wisdom. And how could he, who is God, do anything other than this? So those first nine verses, they they really outline this parable. They, They show us exactly what Jesus taught. And... Then we, with these questions of why this new teaching style, we go into verses 10 to 12, which tells us exactly why. This is Jesus' own reason. This is the reason that he gives, his explanation for why he teaches this way. And that reason is that, comparatively, there's only going to be a few people who will be given the mysteries of the kingdom of God. We've seen the difference in attitude between those who are interested in Jesus and those who oppose Jesus. We haven't necessarily seen definitive proof of faith in Jesus by many people. We've seen a difference in interest in Jesus and opposition to Jesus previously. But Jesus takes it a little step further here, and it's really a big step further, not a little step at all. And there's a clear point being made about those who belong to God, who are in God's kingdom and those who are outside of God's kingdom, those who do not belong to God. The 
those who are in God's kingdom will be given these mysteries, they will understand these things. Christ references Isaiah chapter 6, verse 12, where the promise was given to Israel from God through Isaiah the prophet, that because of the unfaithfulness of Israel, because of the unfaithfulness of God's people, they would not be able to discern the wonderful truths of God on their own. But despite that, there would always be a remnant that God kept for himself, just as he promised to the prophet Elijah previously. It is becoming more and more plain that there will be a greater number of people here on earth at any given point in time who do not believe, who do not understand, who cannot comprehend the glorious mysteries of God. Now, for those of us who have been given discernment of God's word, we need to bear in mind something we saw on Wednesday night in our Bible study. That we don't believe, we don't have the capacity to believe these truths of God because we are more intelligent, because we are better thinkers, or because of any merit in ourselves. We can understand these things of God because the Holy Spirit has worked in us to teach us and bring us to the right realisations of God. As I've said, this is becoming incredibly apparent for what's happening at Jesus' time. And it continues today. And this really ties into the parable of the sower and why there's four soils. And there's only really four types of soils, which we understand Jesus is talking about people. There's four types of people who respond to God's word. Verse 13. After saying, you've been given the mysteries of the kingdom of God, Jesus says to his his disciples, do you understand this parable? Now, when I was in class at school and a teacher asked me, do you know what I'm talking about? There was a lot of shuffling and looking down. Who would like to answer this question? I don't think anyone had their eyes up looking at the teacher at that point in time. They had straight down. No, I don't know. These guys, they they didn't yet understand the parable. And Jesus says, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand the other parables? And they're probably thinking, more teaching like this? More things where we have to think hard and try and figure it out? Why don't we go back to the other way? Where it's plain and clear and direct. These questions that Jesus asks of Do you understand this parable? And if you don't, how are you going to understand the others? This isn't designed by Jesus to just harshly rebuke or beat these people into into submission. Uh, In Jamison, Fawcett and Brown's commentary, it reminds us Jesus does not ask this harshly. He knows they haven't yet understood this parable. But he is gracious with them. And he explains this parable to them. Now the sower isn't necessarily any one single person. It is a person scattering the truths of God, sharing those wonderful things we see of God in the Bible. This is meant to be every single person who believes in God taking on this role of the sower. Through our actions, but through our words in particular, we scatter the news of the gospel. We scatter those seeds out. We throw it wide. There's big arcs. 
of gospel seed going out is how we're meant to live. And you can imagine multiple sowers walking a few metres apart from each other through these fields, each reaching into their bag and scattering. You just see seeds all through the air. In many ways, while there's a singular sower being spoken about here, we see this is to be a picture of God's people. Just God's word everywhere. God's word going forth from his people. This is meant to be the testimony of the church. This is meant to be the testimony and the lifestyle of every single Christian. It's going out. The good news is going out. And it falls on all sorts of different soils, on all sorts of different people are going to hear this. But not everyone is going to believe. And we should not stop sowing because there will be disbelief. We should keep sowing because at the end we get to that one type of soil which gives us hope. Some falls on the wayside. The birds come in, they take it away. Those birds represent Satan. Now we might just picture this as the bird feeders of the world would picture it as being providing sustenance for the lovely birds of the world. This is a graphic, a graphic image being put forward here by Christ. Consider the seed, what that seed is. That is life. That is forgiveness. That is that glorious future of eternity with God. It falls into people's ears. And Satan snatches that away. That is not just a seed being snatched away. That is life. That is forgiveness. That is hope. That is a glorious eternity being snatched away because that is what Satan would love to see happen. This isn't just a a nice image here. There's a graphicness here. And what makes this even more graphic for us that we need to understand is to consider people we know who have heard God's word and have not believed. Who it just seems to either bounce off, there's no penetration whatsoever. They continue willfully in sin. Many of us, I'm sure, have people in our lives who we know like this. And it's a, it's a spiritually horrifying issue. It's not just something we should brush over we should we should shudder when we see this we should grieve when we see this and we should pray when we read this that that soil would be tilled then the second soil there's those who initially receive the seed with gladness there's some recognition there of the truth and the goodness and just how wonderful this might be Roots aren't deep. They have no root in themselves. They endure only for a time. Afterward, when when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now, I was a little bit distracted with Zara when Lindsay was preaching a few weeks ago. But what I heard near the end of his sermon was particularly pertinent to this point. He touched on the hardships of the world in which we live. He spoke of various things, various circumstances, which he thought he would never see happen. Things that I think we could all say, we never thought that would happen. We never thought that hardness would exist, that hardship could exist. 
But there is trial and there is tribulation. And for those who don't have this depth of soil, the seed is not going to continue to grow. It certainly can't bear fruit. The pressures, the tribulation, because of the word, opposition to Jesus, opposition to God, opposition to God's people, it will shrivel up that seed. The third is similar to the second soil, but it's a little bit better. It initially looks good. Initially, it's a more responsive heart. But as time progresses, as that seed begins to grow in what would otherwise be good soil, the thorns creep in. Very soon, that soil, that, that, that heart becomes clogged with fame fortune with the fantasies of the world that realization the gladness that the gospel is for every part of our lives that the gospel is our whole and sole focus our sole hope of eternal life is choked out by the thorns but there is one good soil Before we touch on that, as we look, even though there's differences between those three other soils, the end result is the same. Unfruitfulness. Unfruitfulness. Jesus is almost building in our minds this barrenness out there. Just dirt. No life. Emptiness. Nothing is growing other than things that are destructive. What's left in, from those first three soils is sin, death, and decay. But this is still a parable of hope, and we do have this fourth soil to look at here. It is a heart whose ground has been prepared by the Holy Spirit. It is the heart that takes the seed. It is the heart that is eternally gladdened by the good news of Jesus Christ, of God's redemptive plan coming to fruition through him. It is a heart that produces fruit, and it should be our hope and prayer that this heart is inside of each and every one of us. Some commentaries I was reading in preparation for this sermon suggested that the third soil is particular cause for Christians to keep examining our own hearts, to bear in mind the words that the author of Hebrews writes, to cast aside every weight of sin, that we might run the race that is set before us, to make sure these thorns, this sinfulness does not creep in. And to do that properly, we need to pray to God. At the end of Psalm 19, David prays that the Lord would even... Make him aware of those sins that he's not aware of in his own heart. We cannot do this alone. This tilling of the ground and maintaining of the ground needs to be done by coming back to God. But we should examine our hearts to make sure those rocks, those thorns of fame and fortune and fantasies, other than God's goodness, are not present. Examine ourselves and ask God's help to do that, that those seeds would truly grow and thrive and note in there that there are various levels of production from the even in this good soil we see some produce 30 fold some 60 some 100 fold 
I can't remember how many times I said through uni and when I was frustrated with sometimes at Bible college, P's make degrees. I've done enough to pass this assessment piece. I'm going to submit it because that's all I need to get the piece of paper at the end. P's make degrees. Now, mostly I said that as a joke, mostly. I admit to having a bad attitude at times. I truly did put in more than the bare minimum effort most of the time. But we see here that some produce 30, some produce 60, and some produce 100-fold. These are all the good soils, all lumped together as good soil here. But there's, there's a big difference between those numbers, aren't there? 30 and 100, that's a long way between those two. And 60, of course, is double 30. It's a big difference. Earlier on, earlier on in verse 16, while Jesus is talking about the stony ground, the ones who hear the word immediately and receive it with gladness. Let's look at that word gladness there because I think that is quite important. That is a word worth remembering when it comes to receiving the gospel of grace. And it is worth asking ourselves in light of my saying we need to examine our hearts, how glad are we? How glad do we continue to be for the grace that has been given to us, both in the, the preparation of our hearts to receive this seed and the growth that comes from having received that seed. That seed is a good news of salvation from sin found in Christ Jesus alone. Are we as Christians, as people who profess faith in Christ, still glad for that? Because it can be easy to just go through the motions. We rock up to church on Sundays. We rock up to Bible studies. We rock up to prayer meeting. Someone's not at church that day. We pick up the phone. We give them a call. But it's sometimes just we're going through the motions. How much gladness, how much heart for God is behind us, our lives? Are we still fired up, as fired up as we first were when we came to faith in Christ? One of the incredible joys when you talk to someone who has just recently professed faith in Christ is seeing just how fervent they are, how thankful they are, how glad they are for the work that God has done in their hearts. And sadly, we do sometimes lose that over time. We need to ask ourselves, are we still as passionate about this life-saving word as we were the day we first heard it and believed it? Because we should be. If we are still passionate and fired up for God, we will keep serving. We will keep producing for him as his spirit allows us to. We will keep bearing fruit. And we will keep sowing the seed that we've been given to see others saved by the grace of God. Now, maybe you've spent your life doing that and you go, I have no idea how many people have actually been changed by me sharing the gospel. I'm going to share two stories with you now. One is one of my early mentors and one is with John Calvin. The man who started my 
theological uh, training and putting it into practice in a church, describes his life as being completely off the rails. Every sort of sin, hedonism that you can imagine, that was his life. He was drunk at the rocks at Sydney one night. A man who had a pram with him came up to this man and said to him, do you know where you're going when you die? That simple question. My mentor, who at this point in time, when he was telling me this was a pastor and had impacted many lives for God's glory, told me his response was anger. He yelled at this man, despite this man having a child with him. Yelled at him, abused him, used all sorts of obscene language. That man went away not knowing, never knowing, that God used that to save a soul and to save a soul who went on to have a great impact on many other souls. Just because we don't see the result of us sowing the seed doesn't give us grounds to stop. Just because more people might reject it than receive it does not give us grounds to stop because we trust God to do the growing. I also mentioned I'd talk about John Calvin briefly. There's a theory floating around theological circles that John Calvin is the greatest church planter who ever lived. Do you know how many churches John Calvin personally planted? None. But he trained people. He shared the gospel. And within two generations of his life, it is assumed or calculated that about two, close to 2,000 churches were planted because of his ministry because he sowed the seed given to him. Are we happy to live with just the minimal return for God who is glorious and eternal and has saved us from eternal damnation? How are we living our lives? Now, there's no Bruce, that man I first told you about, other than Bruce. There's no John Calvin other than John Calvin. But God has poured his grace and his mercy out on everyone who calls on the name of the Lord for salvation, and he will not let us be put to shame. That is how God deals with us. How do we live for God? Again, the God who saved us from eternal condemnation. Do we share the joy of the gospel in our homes? Do we share the joy of the gospel with our colleagues or with our school friends if we're children? We have been given so much. When we consider this parable, we should be grieved at the realisation that many will reject the word of God. That many will say, no, we do not accept that life. We should grieve at the trials and tribulations that are mentioned here. We should grieve at the activity of Satan that he would snatch away that word from some. But we should also be glad and we should rejoice that we have seen, heard and understood the glories of God by his grace. And as much as we've seen and heard and understood today, we'll know more tomorrow. And we look forward to that glorious eternal future where we know even more forever but until we do get to that glorious future we long for 
How committed are we to bearing as much fruit as possible? Please don't think that Christian life can just equate to that uni student attitude of peas make degrees. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We know that it is hard for us to grapple with parables at times, yet we thank you that you have given us the spirit to help us understand not just the parables, but the entirety of your word to us. We thank you for the wonderful teacher we have, and we thank you for these incredible truths of the kingdom of you being revealed to us that grow our confidence that we truly are saved from sin, that we truly belong to you. We are citizens of your kingdom forever. Lord God, help us to be fervent for you. Help us to continue each day in gladness. And help us, O God, to sow the seed. It's hard and discouraging as it can be at times. Strengthen our resolve that in all that we do, whether we eat or drink, we'll do it for the glory of your name.